The following episode contains major spoilers for both the script and the series or film featured in the title. We recommend either reading or watching before listening to this episode. Hello and welcome to the third installment of Script to Screen. My name is Mercedes Milner. I'm Deanna Gomez. I'm Angela Thomas. And we are the Ride or Die Chicks. Uh, For the month of March, we got a little behind, which could, I I mean, there's a pandemic going (laughs) on, so (laughs) (laughs) it was a little tough to get this episode going, but we figured out Zoom, I'm still learning, it's a learning curve for me, (laughs) I feel like an old woman, but we're we're doing what we can, and I think from this point on, uh, we can only go up from here, very exciting. So... This episode, we are going to be focusing on Twin Peaks Episode 1, Traces to Nowhere. Dun, dun. That... <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Uh, this script was written by Mark Frost and David Lynch, and the episode itself was directed by David Lynch. So something that we introduced last episode and that we're going to be doing every episode is just doing a quick overview of what those credits mean, at least the writing credits, because we all know what directed by means. Um, So in this case, written by, it indicates that the writer or writers are entitled to the story by credit and the screenplay by credit. Uh, So the story by credit is anyone who worked on a treatment or outline of the show or movie, and the screenplay by is for the writers who physically wrote drafts or scenes, including in the final version. So because they they built this project together, basically from the ground up, they both get the written by credit together. So going into the background, I actually did quite a bit of research on this, and it feels like a rabbit hole, but thank you, Wikipedia, for clarifying quite a bit for me. That's where I got a lot of my information, which (laughs) I guess is just a culmination of a lot of other people's information. So thank you, everyone that contributed. Twin Peaks is an American mystery horror drama, a lot of genres, television series created by Mark Frost and David Lynch that premiered on April 8th, 1990 on ABC. The series follows FBI agent Dale Cooper and his investigation into the mysterious death of small town golden girl, Laura Palmer. The series is set in the fictional town of Twin Peaks, Washington, a quaint, unsuspecting cesspool of shady activity, infidelity, and corruption. Anything to add, ladies? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw that it when I looked it up, it was a crime drama mystery, and then randomly I saw it was a horror, and I was like, okay, you can be whatever you want to be. You're Twin Peaks, just go on. <laughs> One of those shows that every... can make up its mind. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Definitely, definitely. uh, Apparently, the original concept is that they wanted to kind of, like, do a cross-breed of, like, a crime mystery show, but also a soap opera. So, I mean, I think it does that. I think it does that. I think it has all those elements. Yeah. Yeah, it's just getting getting there is a little odd. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The show is interesting. (laughs) Just going into a bit of the history just about the show, because obviously it's got a pretty major cult following. So a lot of people might know this already, but for people like us that didn't really 
dive too deep into this. Um, the show's original run lasted for two seasons, um, which aired in the early 90s, but it was canceled um, in 1991 due to declining ratings. But despite that, it continues to maintain a major cult following and has been revered by many as one of the best mysteries ever made. Thoughts on that? Uh, Do we agree? <laughs> I, I don't know. You know I didn't finish that show. It's before our time. That's I'll just say that. It's before all of our times. So. I didn't finish the show, but I also wasn't very into it. Mm. So, uh, I don't know. Maybe, I mean, maybe because I didn't finish it, like, I didn't. Maybe it gets better. <laughs> um, I, I've, I've been thinking about kind of finishing it to see if I can see what other people... Like what other that. people see in it? Yeah. It's not my favorite. Like, I don't think it's absolutely terrible. I just think it's a lot. And the acting is what really – I can't sometimes. It's, it's not always great. It's, it, it's very Sarah kooky. Palmer in particular, can we say. <laughs> okay. Yes, that's exactly who I'm talking about when I go into acting. Because when yes. we go to, like, the flashbacks and the videos, I'm like, who is this woman? Did, was this a direction they gave her? I'm sure she's better than this. She was just in it. She was in it. We'll touch <laughs> on her later. Okay. <laughs> but I I will agree with it having a cult following and like a pop culture following because I can see where a lot of shows kind of use this one as a jumping off point. But more true, not true crime, but more um, strictly crime dramas not going for the the kookiness because the whole who killed Laura Palmer feels like that happened again in the what is it the killing and a few other shows where like the whole mystery is trying to figure out why a certain person died throughout the show I can mm -hmm. see that same concept over time since that show came out but, but I this think one this is where that originated I know it didn't but I can just say like I was feeling the same vibes but then this show goes in a completely different direction Vibe-wise, part of it too is like David Lynch as a writer and creator. It's it's always something a little extra. Like it's never just a mystery, and I think that's why you see with all the mixture of genres, like that's where the kookiness kind of comes from mm -hmm. because they're combining all those elements, whether it's through dialogue or just the characters themselves. Like it, it was always going to be kooky. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that like I I give it that. That's pretty interesting. I don't think it's the best mystery of all time or whatever they said. <laughs> yeah. I think it's up to interpretation. Maybe if maybe if we finish it, it'll all come together and we'll be like, wow. I, I know, can't maybe believe that I waited be so our long. Goal. <laughs> I know. I don't ever want to think we're just like, no, this was awful. That's not what we're saying at all. It's just not – it didn't click for me. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, But maybe if I finish it, it will. So that it's on my list for sure. In our efforts to finish this, we will have to watch the first two seasons. And then following the end of the first run of the series, viewers uh, got Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me in 1992. And that was written by David Lynch and our very own former MFA professor, Robert Ingalls. Bob. Which I think totally makes sense because Bob is just about as zany as this show. It completely fits with his personality. <laughs> 100%. You should watch it, and you should read it, and support, obviously, David Lynch and, and Bob. We support Bob. <laughs> we <Yes>. support Bob. <laughs> and then it doesn't end there. Uh, it goes, after 25 years, cut to May 21st, 2017, <laughs> where we get Twin Peaks The Return, otherwise known as Twin Peaks, 
a limited event series. Um, and that aired on Showtime. So Lynch and Frost, I guess, re-teamed up to develop and co-write the continuation of the original series. And, but this one picks up 25 years after the original events. So if you watch the first seasons, you skip the next 25 years, and then when you pick up, it's not as if we're picking up exactly where we were, because obviously people have aged. <laughs> that would be hilarious. Yet <laughs> they tried to pick it up exactly where they left off. Like, what happened to your face? <laughs> <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> so this series is actually, which I found pretty interesting, it's based off of a it's loosely inspired by an actual murder. Did you guys know that? I did not I, know that. I knew that when you wrote it in the notes, but I was like, that's scary. <laughs> <laughs> Laura Palmer's character and uh, the town of Twin Peaks is actually inspired by the death of Hazel Irene Drew. Um, so I did just like a little miniature thing about the murder, which I will read to you now. And I got my information mostly from a Washington Post article and um, this website called Find a Grave, which is very interesting. I need to do more research on exactly what it is. So I don't know if they just at if you could just find anybody's grave and their story attached. <laughs> but that's the case for this death. So in the summer of 1908, in the small town of Sand Lake, New York, 20-year-old Hazel Irene Drew strolled alone at night on a remote wooded section of Taborton Road near Teal's Pond, the local lake. Along the way, she would come across 17-year-old Frank Smith, a simple-minded farmhand. I want to put that in quotes because that's how they referred to this person. Um, I guess back in 1908, it was, it was just okay to call people that. <laughs> um, who fancied Hazel and his acquaintance, 35-year-old charcoal peddler Rudolph Gundrum. The men would exchange hellos with Hazel as they passed her on their way toward town in Gundrum's horse-drawn wagon. This would be the last reported sighting of Hazel alive. Four days later, on July 11th, Hazel's body washed up on the banks of Teal's Pond, bloated by the water beyond recognition. She would be identified by the gold fillings in her teeth and the clothing on her body. Her cause of death was due to blunt force trauma to the back of her head from an unknown object, and her murder remains unsolved to this day. So. Hazel's death and the town of Sand Lake um, would spark the inspiration for Laura Palmer and the setting for Twin Peaks, um, which comes a lot from Mark Frost, his background, because he would spend his summer vacations when he was younger in Taborton, New York, and his grandmother used to tell him cautionary tales. And I guess the a part of the local lore there is that the ghost of Hazel haunts Teal Pond or that section of to Borton Road. So his grandmother would use that as a tale to say, like, don't walk alone in the woods at night. I'm like, well, who would? <laughs> I mean, I guess a lot of people. In 1908, <laughs> maybe. They weren't. When was electricity again? <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure electricity was before 1908. No, but I mean, like, people walking around. I mean, like, street lamps and stuff. So, like, walking around oh. at night. <laughs> but there's not going to be street lamps in the woods, Anne. It's true. <laughs> that's not the thing I actually had I was hung up on how do you wash up on the banks of a pond oh or, well it's called Teal's Pond but it's like a, a lake that I, I don't know why 
it's called Teal's Pond. Oh, I guess okay. that's just what it is. But but wait, a, a lake is still not attached to the ocean, right? Isn't that how? Or, uh, things things can still wash on shore in a lake. Oh, and I don't know. I've never been. Lakes to have shores, don't they? Am yes. I wrong? No, no, they have shores. But I'm thinking of like when every time we see somebody wash up, it's like from the waves of the ocean. But uh. I, I was like, how did you wash up? I thought the water didn't move. But I don't know. That's not true at all. In a lake. Water I moves. I don't know these things. I've never been to a lake <laughs> It's <before>. irrelevant. <laughs> Either way, they found her floating there. They found her body. <laughs> okay, move on. Sorry. But um, something that I think that Mark Frost, because he, he mentions this in a lot of interviews, is that he was really, he fixated on the idea of like this, this woman, like a beautiful young girl, just washing up onto a shore. I guess it's just like a weird juxtaposition of beauty and horror, <laughs> so, which I, I do think that leads me into my next point, because if you got the chance to watch the actual pilot, mm-hmm. we are not covering the pilot in this episode. No. We thought we were, but the pilot is separate from the first episode. We did not know that. Do not yell at us. <laughs> you know... It's just, if it's called episode one, you think it's the pilot. I'm just saying. It's our knee-jerk reaction. We I know there's, it has another another title, but episode one is what some people know it by, and that's what we went off of. So that's mm-hmm. stupid and not our fault. I'm just saying. Yeah. Yeah. But if you watched the pilot, and even if you read the pilot, you can see a lot of the inspiration you could see a lot of what's pulling what Mark Frost pulled from this story because it feels, especially the introductory part of it, even the opening scenes or the opening sequence where we have the, the gentleman walking down the rocky path. That's like, you could see the woods next to it. It's pretty remote. And then you see the body washed up on the shore. I'm just like, Hmm, I could see the inspiration. Too, even if you so even if you watch this episode with us, you should still watch the pilot because the pilot has some really this entire series has really great sh- like shots. The cinematography is beautiful. I think mm-hmm. that's one thing that I really liked about it. And I think one of the shots of like Laura being discovered is one of the most like ominous and dark scenes that I've ever seen, and it's just horrifying. Mm-hmm. So if you have a chance to watch the actual pilot, you totally should. It's on Netflix. It you is. should watch it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You can't tell us you don't have a Netflix at this point. Everyone does. There's a pandemic. <laughs> I don't know if we mentioned. We're not salty. <laughs> oh my gosh. With all that being said, are you guys ready to jump into the actual script? Oh, did Stuart? you want to define a pilot first? Oh, oh, yes. Okay. So, for future reference, we still weren't wrong because the definition of a pilot is a standalone episode of a series that is used to sell the show to a network. It's used to test the potential for future success, but the discrepancy there is oftentimes, actually most of the time, the series is picked up, when the series is picked up by the network, the pilot will become the first episode of the series to kick everything off because this is where a lot of things are established, like the context of all the character arcs. We get the character introductions that we need to follow people throughout the series. So. Typically, if you shot a pilot, you use the pilot for the first episode. 
Twin Peaks had this like made for TV movie special event unveiling so fancy. And then it had an episode one. I don't get it. I'll never get it. (laughs) It was a different time then. (laughs) It's a different time. I'm sure it's not the only show that has done it. I'm just saying, put the pilot down as episode one, damn it. Like, why have pilot and then episode one? I don't get it. It's confusing. I don't like it. I do know some shows have in the past have reshot the first episode which is also the pilot after mm-hmm. being picked up in case there's like somebody recast or there's some other details or maybe they have more money but then you would never like that pilot probably wouldn't be available on netflix yeah if that yeah. happened because they did that with buffy hmm? they did that with the original buffy that's when they recast willow oh mm-hmm. oh mm-hmm. and then sometimes in those in those instances if you get a pilot that has to be reshot or something like that they they it's often aired like later down later down the line in the season it's no longer the pilot like technically it was the first episode shot but they don't have to put it in the front i'm just saying label label your scripts correctly pilot is episode (laughs) one so we are starting off the script breakdown with a page one breakdown because as you know or as you will learn the first page of a script is arguably the most important because that's where you get a lot of the that's where you get the chance to pull in the audience if your person if your reader is not captivated by the first page they're not going to make it to the 15th page for sure so you really need to pay attention to how you open up your your page one and focus on what's important don't put all that weird exposition at the top Make it a captivating scene so that they'll want to read to the point where there is exposition. Things to add? No, I agree. You got it. (laughs) Am I being sassy today? I feel (laughs) sassy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm just like, we got to, we got to talk about this opening monologue, man. Yes. Okay. And I'm not reading it. (laughs) Just saying. Are we reading this? Yes. That's why I put it there. (laughs) Okay. So that's on you. I will do stage directions. Okay, I will play Cooper in the page one read-through. All right. Fade in, exterior, Great Northern Hotel, day. Dawn breaks over the Great Northern. Cut to, interior, Great Northern Hotel room, day. We hear him before we see him. But Dale Cooper is perched six inches above the floor in a one-handed yoga frog position, wearing boxer shorts and a pair of socks, talking into the tape recorder, which is sitting on the carpet near his head. Diane, 6.18 a.m., room 315, Great Northern Hotel up here in Twin Peaks. Slept pretty well. Non-smoking room, no tobacco smell. That's a nice consideration for the business traveler. A hint of Douglas fir needles in the air. As Sheriff Truman indicated they would, everything this hotel promised, they delivered. Clean, reasonably priced accommodations. Telephone works, bathroom in really tip-top shape, no drips, plenty of hot water with good, steady pressure. Could be a side benefit of the waterfall just outside my window. Firm mattress, but not too firm. No lumps like that time I told you about down in El Paso. Diane, what a nightmare that was. But, of course, you've heard me tell that story once or twice before. Haven't tried the television. Looks like cable, probably no reception problems. But the true test of any hotel, as you know, is the morning cup of coffee. 
which I'll be getting back to you about within a half hour. Diane, struck me again earlier this morning. And then he goes on about who killed the Kennedys and what really went on. JFK. (laughs) Oh, who Um, killed JFK? (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. He's more random than us. Goodness. Very random character. But for novice writers or people that are just breaking in, this setup for a first page is probably going to worry readers because this is a, a great example of like, don't break the rules until you know what they are. So most first pages aren't going to look like this. You can't just do one giant chunk of dialogue right off the top, unless you're Mark Ross and David Lynch. Then you could do it. <laughs> but they're not doing that for nothing. It's You can tell right away that we're establishing a lot about Cooper's character, and it, it keeps the, the reader guessing. There's a lot of questions that you get right at the top like, who the hell is Diane? Yeah. And why is he always recording to her when he could just call her? What, why is it a recording? I was like, is Diane alive? I'm, I'm not That's sure. That's what I was thinking, too. Right? Is she dead? I'm like, is that, like, his dead wife or, like, his dead partner? Yeah. <laughs> and this is how we stay so positive. I know. But then later on down the line, he gives her actual commands. Like, there was some form of evidence or something that was revealed. He's like, oh, Diane, call this person. Don't bother with this person. They're not going to get it done. And I was just like, is it his assistant? Why isn't he calling her? I know. That's, well, that's the whole point throughout the entire series. He's talking to her and recording. I'm like, if you want these things done, it's not like you're going to mail these recordings to her. Maybe it's just like his notes so he can listen back to remind himself what he was going to tell her. Like, Maybe. But by the time she gets that that order, it's it's going to be far too late. It's like, oh, <laughs> Diane, I told you to do that weeks ago. And she's like, you told yourself to do that weeks ago. <laughs> so there's a lot of questions here. The Diane thing, Sheriff Truman, if you're reading this as we were without having read the pilot and without having seen the pilot, like if this is what episode one is, there's a lot more questions than you probably would have if you had seen those first. But I, 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 I still like it. It's a great indicator of the theme for the series, I think, as a whole, because this show is basically nothing but questions and very few answers. And it's almost as if the writers are saying, you want answers? You got to keep reading or keep watching. Maybe we'll give them to you. Maybe not. We don't know. That's another question. (laughs) Still on page one, have you guys come across a strip that breaks up their action line like this before? No. No. And I, I'm not sure exactly why that happened. My guess was like, were they writing it on a typewriter and it happened that way? Or I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Um, I, I try not to spend too much. I was just like, it, it could just be something that happened on accident or I don't know. Then that aside, now I'm just being nitpicky. One handed Yoda fraud position. That's- Which isn't even exactly what he ends up doing. They end up he's like hanging upside down. I feel like that's just one of those things where maybe they uh, discovered that, that would be more like weird or more interesting to the audience to see him just like a random guy hanging upside down. Mm-hmm. So maybe they just decided that on set. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Or he just couldn't do this position. <laughs> <laughs> Or that, too. Maybe he was like, no, nah, I can't do that. I, excuse me. What is it that I... What is the frog position? The frog. But I'm on one hand. Hmm. No, no. No, I can't do that. He's like, I can't. I'm not going to. 
but do I, I believe still- that any of these men probably did yoga and didn't just like look up this pose no I'm pretty sure they probably looked up this pose Be like <laughs> they probably saw it somewhere and they're like ah oh, that's that's so like, that's weird that's it we that's gotta put it, it we're in gonna there. have him what ridiculous pose can we have him in that showcases his personality mm-hmm. basically it's just supposed to be he's a quirky character as you if you couldn't tell by the dialogue so here's he's the type of person that actually would be doing this pose casually mm-hmm. oh and that's what i can say when i originally thought we were reading the pilot i thought they were just being groundbreaking and every character was just explaining their character and personality in their dialogue but then mm-hmm. i realized this is episode one odd uh but <laughs> every character does still do that they all it's they all showcase their character and personality through their dialogue so mm-hmm. you don't it doesn't require an additional character description besides that. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that there there wasn't even any, there were no ages or anything. There was just capitalized names. And I'm not sure if maybe in the first episode they they established all that, but from what I can tell by the style of these writers, it doesn't seem like they, they would think it would be necessary. It's just like all you need to know is there in the dialogue. Which brings me to Act 1, which I have titled, What the F is Going On Around Here? sounds about right so that that is exactly what i opened up this this part of the breakdown with and just using the the dialogue to really describe the characters i i was with you i thought it made the the script really dynamic and i'm just like wow it, it really forces the reader to use their imagination or to pull from other characters that you've seen before and other things because they they lean pretty heavy on archetypes but they also still manage to make these characters feel pretty original. Mm-hmm. But you could use, you can kind of use deductive reasoning to figure out like, oh, this is that type of character. Like for me, an example of like pulling from something I've seen before, Lucy's character. Have you guys ever heard of Box 13? No. Mm-mm. So I'm a little nerdy and I really like listening to old time radio, in particular, um, Great Detectives. Box 13 was a, uh, a show that aired in the late 40s. It's a radio show that followed this guy, uh, Dan Holliday. He wrote a newspaper column that searched for adventure so he could have um, material for his mystery novels, essentially. Uh, and his secretary was named Susie. And she's a little dim-witted, but very well-intentioned. And she reminds me exactly of Lucy and vice versa. They're basically the same exact character. And when I read Lucy, I thought of Susie instantly. And I'm just like, I wonder if that was intentional, if, they, if they've if they ever <laughs> listened to Box 13. But I, that's, that's how the script reads to me. Um, I think we also see that with Audrey Horn's character. These are the two that mm-hmm. I can pinpoint exactly like, we know exactly what we're dealing with here. Um, and I actually pulled her introduction for us to read because I think she has a pretty classic introduction for this type of character. So, cut to Audrey Horn across the room watching Cooper. She slips into her beguiling rip your heart out routine and sachets across the dining room to Cooper's table. That's great. I'll have the grapefruit juice as long as. Those grapefruits are freshly squeezed. The waitress departs. Audrey smiles. My name is Audrey Horn. 
Federal Bureau of Investigation, Special Agent Dale Cooper. Can I sit here? Miss Horn, unless I miss my guess, your father is Benjamin Horn, the owner of this fine establishment. So I guess you can sit anywhere you like. And I'd also like to add, it would be my pleasure. Audrey sits, a little confused, runs a hand over her forehead. So past this point of the script, I make a note of it here because Audrey goes into the Agent Cooper asks her if she knows Laura Palmer because by this point we all know that he's here investigating the weird death of Laura Palmer and there's tension between Audrey's character and Laura I guess that the context for their relationship is set here but there's a lot that is removed that I think is really interesting because in the aired episode it kind of takes away from whatever tension could have been built because in the scene she describes like a she kind of describes a weird infatuation that her dad had with Laura yeah. I don't know if you guys remember her talking about like oh he bought her a pony and mm-hmm. allowed her dad to say that it was from him so it it sets it up as just like it almost seems like she's upset with Laura because her dad liked her better than her. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Yeah, like when you read the script, you get that she was she was kind of jealous of Laura. Mm-hmm. But when you watch it, because they cut some of that out, you just know that like they probably didn't like each other. But there's mm-hmm. no like background as to why exactly. But it's interesting because they, down the line, they do keep in a bit of the conflict, like when she's confronted by her dad. And she kind of lets a little bit slip about Laura I feel like that's a little bit lessened because they took this out because this was supposed to be planting the seed of like, oh, I don't get along with you because you liked Laura better than me. So when the, when when they kind of unveil a little bit of that later on down the line in the episode, we don't have this to lean on to be like, oh, it's because her dad freaking loved Laura. And he was always like, who the hell is Audrey? <laughs> So I'm not really sure if they felt like they didn't need to say that, like we would just understand. But it is weird to have taken it out because it seemed like such a distinctive detail. Otherwise, she just didn't like Laura. (laughs) Well, what I kind of thought after they took that out and when you're just watching it, it seems like it definitely, you get that Laura was no angel. And so it kind of just goes back to that like girl on girl infighting because of that. Like, maybe Audrey was jealous of the attention everyone gave Laura. And because of the type of character Audrey is, she's she wants that attention. So maybe she was jealous that Laura got that attention so freely. Like, that's what I was getting throughout. Because as we learn more about Laura's character, and just kind of knowing that Audrey is this stereotypical, like, daddy issue, um, attention-needing person, she wouldn't like Laura at all, you know? Mm-hmm. That's a really good way to to put it. Mm-hmm. Interesting perspective. <clears throat> and I'm being nitpicky again. Uh, I remember uh, Bob talking about he used to write so well for a show and he knew so much about the showrunner that he could even put in the same typos that the showrunner would put in. And I'm wondering if that's why there's a few typos sprinkled throughout the script, but it's also the first draft, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so I have to ask... You guys were saying horn, right? Yeah. Not home? Yeah. It yeah. is Why horn. Is it, it's home on 
like mm-hmm. in the script. Did you guys notice? That's typo yes, number I did. one. Yeah, I think there, there's quite a few typos in this version. <laughs> Is that I know because I found one later too, and I'm like, but when I read that, it was so funny because I was like, did they change the name? Like, did they originally have their last name as Home? I really or is it a typo that's weird i i just assumed it was a typo mm-hmm. okay <laughs> yeah that same typo happens twice and then there's a few other ones throughout the script and i was just like aha it's not just us as students <laughs> that make typos everybody makes typos nobody's perfect but if we're being honest whenever bob was talking about like typos and formatting he was like just write it and someone will fix that later <laughs> so it doesn't it wouldn't surprise me if like david lynch and and them had the same idea. <laughs> I guess that wouldn't surprise me either. Oh, gosh. Not everybody has that luxury, people. Fix your typos yourself. Be accountable. <laughs> it's a little bit of privilege showing there. But uh... <laughs> check your privilege at the door, Bob. <laughs> I'm jumping ahead here to when we meet Leo and Shirley Johnson. Um and Leo Johnson's bloody shirt. <laughs> uh, we can we can see the the archetypes more clearly, um, and the way that they're implementing them in my mind is kind of taking all the weird characters that you would see in a typical small town, or like what you would assume would be in a small town, and kind of making them a little bit grittier, so to speak. Because in a, I would think in a typical small town soap opera maybe this is telling of the time, but they're, I don't think they would really be so forward with the domestic abuse couple is what I'm calling them, the quote unquote domestic abuse couple, because there, there must be at least one that everybody knows what's going on, but nobody's saying anything. But it's interesting here that they choose to be like, no, that here they are. Look at them. It's very in your face. Mm-hmm. And I think the the way that he punishes her is so... Like you, like you said, it's we've all heard of these things happening to people, mm-hmm. but when they actually sh- like they don't show the actual beating, but they show the prep for it, and you know what has what is coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they I build think, the tension. Yeah, I think that says a lot about it because I remember when I watched this, like I've heard of like the soaps and fruits and stuff in socks, and that's yeah. how people do it, but I've never seen it before this mm-hmm. episode, and I was like, oh. Okay. But, yeah, the, I, I understood with the prep, and then it started getting weird when he was doing that lassoing. That, that was spinning. a little bit comical. Yeah, I was yeah. like, what is happening? Like, I don't think that was intentional, but... Yeah. yeah. I, it just freaked me out, and it makes me uncomfortable. Any, any scene with these two in it makes me so uncomfortable when they're together. Mm-hmm. And I... Ugh. I don't know, but I think that's a, I think that's a good thing. Who's supposed to be comfortable watching somebody in a de- domestic violence situation? And it's very interesting that they, they're making a point to show all these weird – they're not just showing, like, small-town, happy-go-lucky people. They're showing real people, and that makes them feel – They make it makes every character in the script feel very well-rounded because well, the writers aren't afraid to show these types of archetypes. Well, what I think is really interesting for Leo's character is that we know that he's a bad guy and this is where we see all of that come out in the episode, but then you hear everyone else talking about him throughout and you're like, he's just overall like an asshole. Like he's Mm -hmm. not a good person at all. And I feel like if they had showed all the other stuff, then we'd be like, okay, he's just another, you know, 
bad guy, but showing this, like, it hits a little harder, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So you remember what I said about page one. You can't really have a page that's mostly dialogue. Here in the first act, I think these writers did an amazing job of breaking the rules responsibly. In James Hurley's interrogation. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Mm Mm-hmm. So, during Cooper's interrogation of James Hurley, which was Laura Palmer's secret boyfriend, Frost and Lynch pull off two full pages of dialogue alone, and it's brilliant. I love this. I love this. And I don't know if it's just because I'm really big on true crime, and I'm just like, get him to say he did it. (laughs) It was him. (laughs) But I I really love this process of... um, of investigation, especially in crime. So it was really interesting to be so captivated and not even care about all the white space. So I want to make a point. Typically, why is this breaking a rule? Why can't you just have two full pages of nothing but dialogue? And from my perspective, I think, and from what I've learned, and you guys can tell me if there's anything else that you'd like to add, is it's a big no-no for two reasons in particular. So For one thing, you're eating up valuable page space, um, which comes into play when considering the one page equals one minute rule. So if you spend, if you waste pages just on dialogue and nothing else, it's just, you're eating up two pages that you really could be, you could cut that dialogue in half and you'd have more space for something else that could be deemed more important down the line. And number two, talking heads are boring to watch. And presumably, if you don't add some action to break up the dialogue, the reader will get bored and think you're leaning too much on the dialogue. So it's kind of like, I remember distinctly being in a screenwriting class and having the professor say, like, you never want to have, it could have been Bob's class, to be honest. It's just like, just have them drink a cup of water or something. Yeah, he's like, give the actor some business. Yeah. In the middle of the, the, to me, it feels like they're trying to say, like, if you don't give the actor something to do, they will literally just stand there and talk to somebody. I'm like, that's kind of backhanded to the actor. I'm sure they could figure out something on their own. They don't need you to tell them to take a drink of water. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, like, I think it works, too, because we're seeing the like we're seeing the video play, like we're seeing the flashback of the videotape playing and they have such an interesting Mm -hmm. shot in there when they show the iris, Mm -hmm. like when they show the eye. And I think that just like, it helps break it apart, like you said, but it's so minimal on the page that that could have been done a million ways. So Mm -hmm. I think that translated really well onto the screen. And I also think that it's so interesting because of who the characters are. Like this whole scene is interesting too, because of who Cooper is. And, like, the audience is just waiting to see, like, what is this weirdo going to do next? Like, what is he going to do in this interrogation room? So you don't really mind it because, like, these characters are already set up and you already want answers. So I think it's like you said, you don't mind sitting and having them talk because you want to know what they, like, what they reveal, if they reveal anything. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really important. And I think that's why that scene works well because if you've seen other ones where it's just talking heads and it's just people having a conversation and there's nothing really new revealed, that's not a good job of breaking the rule. Like that's what you don't want to do essentially. That's why that exists. So we are going to read this scene in full because I just love it. I love it so much. (laughs) (laughs) Cut to interior interrogation room A day. James Hurley is seated next to his lawyer across from Truman as Cooper enters and sits beside the sheriff. James has been advised of his rights. 
James, you were placed under arrest for suspicion of murder, the murder of Laura Palmer. You have no previous criminal record, is that correct? None. No, sir. Cooper turns on the VCR, and we see the same videotape of Laura and Donna at the picnic that we saw earlier. James watches the video. James, did you shoot this videotape? Cooper fast-forwards to the freezed frame of the motorcycle reflected in Laura's eye. Isn't that your cycle, James? Yes, sir, it is. The three of us went up there two Sundays ago. James, you were in love with Laura. The two of you were seeing each other secretly. No one else at the school or any of her friends knew about it. She was the homecoming queen. Her boyfriend was the captain of the football team. How much longer did you think you could keep this relationship secret? It was secret because that's the way she wanted it. Why do you suppose that was, James? Do you think it had something to do with Bobby? It had everything to do with Bobby. Why? Was she afraid of Bobby? I think so. Did you know that Laura was using cocaine? Yes. Did you ever take cocaine with her? No. I tried to get her to stop. When was the last time you saw her? Two nights ago, the night she died. For about three hours. She snuck out of her house about 12.30. I stopped the bike at the light at Sparkwood at and 21. She jumped off and ran away. I didn't see her again. You sure it was 12.30? Yes, sir. Steve's liquor locker was closing up as we drove by and he closes right at 12.30. You and Laura have a fight? Not exactly, but she said she couldn't see me anymore. Why? She didn't say. Was she high that night? Yes. Where did she get her drugs? I don't know. Most of the time we were together, she was clean. Did she get her drugs from Bobby? I really don't know where she got them. Where she got them. She never talked about it. She didn't like that part of herself. Why did she start using again? I don't know. Something happened a couple of days ago. Could you tell? It was so captivating. <laughs> <laughs> I did have fun reading that on the page. It's different on the screen, though. It feels a little different, but it's still good. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's just proof that you don't have to give these actors because technically they were talking heads, but even watching it, it didn't feel. I don't know. I didn't feel like I needed them to do anything. I just wanted to hear what they were saying. Mm-hmm. So I think that was a really great way of like pinpointing that. Sometimes the dialogue can stand on its own. It says at the beginning he sits next to his lawyer. The lawyer wasn't in the the televised version, correct? No. No, James was by himself. Mm-hmm. They, I think the only person that had... Nope, nope, I'm thinking of the pilot. <laughs> I was like, the only person <laughs> that had a, a lawyer was Bobby. Oh, but yeah, I another rule, because uh, you know how you would get the... From teachers, they would tell you to break up your dialogue by drinking a glass of water. Mm-hmm. I would get, don't have a character in the scene if you're not giving them anything to do or anything to say. And... I can see that's pretty much what happened with this lawyer because he didn't say anything that entire time. And then when it went to the screen, the lawyer's not there anymore because it's like yeah. you literally, he doesn't need to be there as furniture. But the same thing could be said about um, the sheriff because he only had he one line, line of dialogue. And it's then still the- a line. Yeah, but the rest of the time he's just sitting there, which I think is what's so funny that he eventually was like, I think I've just, I feel like Dr. Watson. <laughs> 
But yeah, but see, that's still something you can fit with, like editing and cutting to reactions. But mm-hmm. is that something you you guys always write on the page too? Like, if you have a character in the scene that doesn't get to say anything, do you do a line, an action line, saying showing that that character's reaction or that character's doing something in the background to Only make if it's his... meaningful? Yeah. yeah, you know, I don't remember. Did they cut to a lot of reactions? Mm. well no. they definitely didn't write any reactions in there mm-hmm. anything yeah. beyond that i think was probably just lynch's directing mm-hmm. act one afterthoughts overall i think the first act makes me want to point the finger at everybody except for lucy <laughs> poor lucy um, i know she's so sweet and i love her but <laughs> um it, it really does make you think like, wow, everybody, everybody kind of is a suspect in some way. And you really don't get any answers to anything. It's just more questions. So it kind of feels like the script is trapping you a little bit because it's like, you have to keep going if you want any hope of resolution. Yeah, it continues the vibe of the pilot episode as well, because I thought everybody did it when I was watching the yeah. pilot. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody, everybody has motive. That's one thing that this show does. And I think it's so, it's so frustrating, but it also kind of grounds it more in reality because if you are a real detective solving a real crime, it probably does feel that way sometimes. And this is a weird town. (laughs) It's not a weird town. It's just these people have some issues and some secrets. Everyone in this town is awful. (laughs) (laughs) Except for Lucy. (laughs) Honestly. Except for Lucy. She's the only one that's, like, not really having an affair. Like, she's just, she's just trying to survive, man. Okay. Before we wrap up on Act 1, I do want to make a point to talk about a little bit the act break. So, I think the act one act break is a really good example of what an act break should be because it ends on a major cliffhanger that is also the end of the scene. So in studying screenwriting, something that every professor kind of tried to instill was like, you have to end your act on a major cliffhanger because that's what's going to make the person come back after the commercial break, which in this new age of streaming we really don't have that anymore, but mm-hmm. there are still a lot of scripts that are structured that way. So you still kind of follow that that same formula. But something that I think is important to know, and it's something that I know I've done before in, in my past, was <laughs> ending the act in the middle of a high stakes scene, like cutting it right in the middle. It's just like, oh, they're going to have to come back because they want to know what, what happens in this scene, the other half of it. But it's, it's, that's not really a cliffhanger. I think it's kind of, as I reflect on it, making that approach to cliffhangers is kind of the same thing as cutting yourself off mid-sentence during a conversation and then standing in awkward silence for two to three minutes. And everyone's staring at you, waiting for you to continue, but you're like, no, 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 we're on a commercial break. (laughs) So (laughs) it it is, that is an effective way to make the, the viewers come back, but it, it's not necessarily because they're following the story and they want to see more, but it's kind of, I think, because they're confused. And I think you should, as writers, we should be focusing on confusing them with the story and not with the cliffhanger. And it also makes it okay not to come directly back to this scene. You could be moving the story forward and just leave that as like, that's just a prolonged cliffhanger. We're not really sure where that 
portion of the story is going to go. And we don't have to know right away. The viewers are probably going to be like, what the hell happened with that? But you could just tell them later because now we're on to the next thing. So you have to wait even longer. You have to wait for two commercial breaks. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. Moving on to act two, which I titled, it only gets weirder from here. Act two opener, Donna, best friend betrayer. That's what I'm calling her because that's what she called herself. (laughs) Okay, I really loved this opening scene to an act because it's described as being like a part soap opera. This is where I get heavy soap opera vibes. Like this scene is super juicy. I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but I'm just like, oh my gosh. She's in love with James after all that. Yeah, so like I'm in it. It also gives her, it makes Donna a suspect too. And this is the first time that we're seeing her for this episode. And I I think her, her storyline was the juiciest. Basically, she led the first episode, the pilot, the true pilot. She led it. She's a good character. I like her. But, but only because she brings the drama. <laughs> Anyways, I I really like this, and I really like the way that it shows her maturity as a high schooler. I don't know if you you guys feel the same way, but the high schoolers that are established in this series are all super intense. Donna feels like the only one that is realistic. Yeah. I thought we were having another uh, batch of, like, 26-year-olds playing, like, 16-year-olds, and I thought it was just, I was just putting it off on that. But no, those are some weird kids. If those they are were... some freaking weirdos. <laughs> I think oh it's gosh. just they're a product of where they're growing up. Like, obviously, mm-hmm. the guys are, like, way more intense because they have all of their issues. I mean, that's very teenager to me. It's just on a whole new level because of what they've gone through. And, like, yeah, she's, like, the more naive one, but she also has a more stable household compared mm-hmm. to everyone else. And, like, you know what she thought she was really always true. going to be messed up. <laughs> like, let's yeah. Be so, I mean, I think they fit their environment as teenagers. That does make sense. Mm. That does make sense. But they are all intense. They, they are. are all intense. And I have to say, as far as, like, Mike and Bobby go – these high schoolers feel super dangerous, like more dangerous than anybody I ever met in high school. <laughs> Which makes me feel like maybe I'm the Donna because I'm just like, I never met anybody that was legit. Like we're going to, it's too bad. We can only kill him one time. And I was just like, who's murdering people in high school? <laughs> it depends on where you live. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. That shows my sheltered upbringing. <laughs> I think bring it's it interesting that you bring you bring that up, Deanna. I think maybe, okay, if I can think about it, if I can really sit and think like, Mercedes, why did you think this way? <laughs> I think it's it's just surprising because of the way that small town life comes across, I guess, in in the mind of somebody that didn't come from a small town. What we assume, what we associate with small towns is like a close-knit community maybe they're really into high school and stuff like or the high school football stuff and you know high school sports are a big deal high school athletes are a big deal very like strong valued people which is why it was so surprising to me I guess it's going back to how gritty these characters were 
Because when you think of, like, I was on some Friday Night Lights shit. I wasn't thinking that these footballers were going to try and murder somebody. Or that they well, were, I think it goes to show, like, you can have a small town like that, absolutely. But that doesn't uh-huh. mean that other towns with all these gritty, fucked up people don't exist as well. Yeah. You know? It's just another side. I just okay. think it's interesting that these writers, I think it's the best way to depict a small town for the type of story that they're doing. Because they could have gone the alternative route. And instead, they're right up front with, like, no, these people are fucked up. This is not the regular small town that you're thinking of. Which I kind of admire. I think that I like that because I feel like I've seen other, um, like, movies and stuff where you start out at this very clean-cut community, small town, and then you slowly reveal all of its secrets. But this Mm -hmm. one was, like you said, it's just very upfront saying that, no, yeah, it's a small town, but it's flawed and everyone knows it. Yeah. But it gets that... Oh, go ahead, Ange. Oh, no, I was saying, like, Deanna said, uh, instead of doing, like, the Desperate Housewives version, where it's, like, it seems fine on the outside and it's inside when you start realizing everything's messed up, it's just everything's messed up from the beginning. They're like, mm-hmm. yeah, this town has issues. But the thing is, is that we they're upfront about it, but then they still take that approach of, like, but it gets worse. Or it's just, like, these people are already <laughs> messed up, but I don't, I bet you don't know how much. Like, <laughs> that's what I think is interesting. They're still using that traditional format but just in this setting and it's so off-putting and just weird i think this at this point you could kind of say that there's like more layers more suspects especially after we're introduced to donna and um this act really focuses on introducing us more to the local characters and they're all weird and suspicious (laughs) And it's, it's like major finger pointing everywhere. And I like, for me, I'm just like, it, the story feels like it's always moving, not in a straight line, but kind of like in a serpentine. You're still going forward, but not exactly how you normally would because of like, look over here. This person's suspicious. Did they do it? Oh no. What about this person? Like Bobby and Mike with, with their own weird connection to Laura. And then they also want to kill Hurley and then, or James Hurley. (laughs) And they're also connected to Leo Johnson and then Donna and James Hurley and their connections to Laura and each other. I'm just like, everybody has motive. Benjamin and Jerry, a weird combination that I didn't trust, but I don't on that. Jerry's not even in the show anymore. (laughs) That's what we never mentioned. The, the order of the scenes in the script is not the order of the scenes in the episode. But ultimately, it just, it just all that aside, all that weird Ben and Jerry stuff aside, <laughs> everyone, like, as the episode progresses, everyone has connections to each other and Laura for one reason or another. And their connections all lead up to, they did it. <laughs> Maybe the whole town did it. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's a conspiracy. I know we don't know, but it's definitely, you definitely get that it's a small world vibe. I definitely did a lot of, it goes all the way to the top yelling. Like (laughs) (laughs) There are a ridiculous amount of bizarre specific details that I also, at least in the script, that I also think is, in my mind, meant to confuse the viewer because it's, it forces the camera to focus on 
or what I believe to be the camera angle to focus on these things that ultimately don't mean anything. So some of the examples were like Audrey scratching her left palm specifically, or the eventual brie and butter sandwich Jerry smuggled from Paris. Like, why are we focusing so hard on <laughs> Or Dr. Hayward's button popping off of his shirt during his reading of Laura's autopsy. It's, it's like such specific details for things that ultimately mean nothing. And it almost feels like they're trying to trick us into paying such close attention to these things because maybe they'll clue us into something. Like, why is that button popping off why is the thread loose did he have something to do with the murder why are we focusing on this element and it just leads you down a rabbit hole to nothing (laughs) i think that part of that too could just be like they're kind of just setting up like small details of the world that we are in because the world is pretty kooky i went to a thief of bad dad and you literally scratch your palm because you're about to steal something or you're about yeah, to get money. Yeah, I've heard money. that too. Like, yeah, or that you've, you've stolen something so your hands itch. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only thing I could think of. And I was like, that's weird. And it's like, and moving on. But she would randomly, she was like, look at my ring. She was all over the that, place. That's anyway. what I thought was weird. And she was like, look at, do you like my ring? No, I was like, girl, what? What's your ring? What? <laughs> I thought she was engaged for a sudden, and then she's like, my dad gave it to me. I was like, what are we talking about? Yeah. See, it all just feels like it's meant to lead you to nowhere. And I think that, like, maybe it's just my mind, because that's why I'm always terrible at murder mystery dinners, because I read too much into everything. I'm like, that's a clue. I know that's a clue. It's not a clue. It's not a clue. <laughs> are very specifically that, like you said, they mean nothing. Mm-hmm. Um like, I know with the brie and butter sandwich, and when we eventually get to that scene in the next episode, the uh, Benjamin, while he's eating the sandwich, he says, doesn't this remind you of something, something? Um, but his mouth is full, so you can't quite get it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if that, like, because in the second episode, they also go to, like, the town's whorehouse, essentially. And so mm-hmm. I don't know if it was, like, left up there, because that's the next scene or whatever. Um, But I don't know if those details, like, they're meant to lead you somewhere, but ultimately it doesn't necessarily matter. Like, they're not needed because we would get to those places either way. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, the button popping off his shirt, I don't know. That was Well, weird. the thing is, is that in the eventual aired episode, they take out half of this stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm just like, that's something that's very specific just for the readers, and maybe they realize, like, we don't have to do that. I was just being <laughs> Yeah, because you do get weird details like that in novels, but that just goes with the medium. So it's like, oh, yeah, the weather was nice that day, and you just move on. It has nothing to do with anything. It's just setting the scene. I mean, it, it could have easily have been that when they were writing this, those seemed important, and then once they started shooting, they were like, that's not that important. Mm-hmm. We can skip that. Mm-hmm. You know. Overall, this act seemed extremely suspect-heavy, and it really took – the vague introductions that we got from the first act and clarified them. But staying true to the form that we've established, it really doesn't answer anything. We just get more questions and more finger pointing. And the end of the act is, it, it feels, it's not a traditional cliffhanger. It just feels like, oh, where are they going to go from here? So it's, it's ending on a question, really. It's not ending like, ooh, that's really going to come back to bite somebody, like the bloody shirt. Um, and I feel like we've learned something up to this point, but 
nothing that definitively connects to Laura's death yet. We're just learning, like, everybody's up to something at least a little shady in this town. Agreed. Like, this episode, we don't, it doesn't lead us anywhere except introducing, like, delving deeper into everyone's lives. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. As far as the case goes, we don't really learn too much that's new. It's really still, like, establishing how crappy this town is. All right. Moving on to Act 3, which I've titled, Who's Sleeping With You? Everyone is sleeping with everyone in this fucking town. (laughs) Which one is sleeping with everyone? And things really come to a head. Like, this is where I really started to notice the pattern. Because there's there's offhand mentions of, like, oh, Ed's having an affair with Norma. He's the one with the wife that has an eye patch for some reason. And that really loves her curtains. Um, and then weird. it's just like, oh, the sheriff is sleeping with Josie Packard. And I'm just like, well, what? Is the sheriff married? Here's what I want to know. Is he in a relationship? Because otherwise, why is it so scandalous? Josie Packard is a widower. She could date who she wants. And soap opera vibes, I started thinking that Laura's real father was Audrey's father because they, he gave her a pony. And I was like, I don't know. Well, anymore. I didn't even consider that. But that could be completely accurate like yeah it could it really could everyone when you think of sarah palmer you're just like "Mm, i don't know how many people are being seduced by that that scream i don't think she could have been a fox back in her day okay (laughs) you don't know her oh my god and if we're being completely honest the couples that are together they don't make sense in the traditional sense it seems mm-hmm. like they just kind of got bored and started sleeping together. Like Benjamin and what's that lady's name? Um, uh, oh, uh, starts with an Catherine. M? Catherine. Catherine. Oh, wow. Like Benjamin off. and Catherine don't make any sense to me. Well, but I guess it's because when you think about that ruin the mill plot, it's it goes into she has the ties to the mill and she would probably get the most out of kicking Josie to the curb. Because I think in her mind, she thinks, oh, I'm working with this person, and that means I'm going to be able to run this new lodge. I'm still going to be the manager on this plot of land. It's just going to be a different business. But I think eventually Benjamin's just going to kick her to the curb once he gets that property anyway. Mm-hmm. I think that's the only reason that he's working with her. So that's, that's how I, I kind of like broke down their relationship. But I don't under, I guess, yeah, I think it does break down to like you get bored. Because initially he's going in like, we got to shut down this mill because I want that land. And she's like, okay, also, I'm not wearing any clothes. (laughs) Also, hey. Also, (laughs) hey. You're here. I'm here. You got the parts. I got the (laughs) parts. It's just weird. Why is everyone... I feel like it's just no one in that town is happy. But, so, when we open this, this act, we... We were introduced to Pete Mar- Martell and um, Josie Packard. And at the start of it, I was really confused as to what their relationship is. I mean, eventually we find out that Pete is married to Catherine. Mm-hmm. I, why are they all living together? Well, do they happen? live together or was he, is he just one of those people that kind of comes in and helps her take care of the house? Hmm. I no. don't know. It's not clear. It's really not clear. And I was confused because I was just like, obviously they're pretty familiar and I'm coming into this not having watched or read the pilot thinking that this is the pilot. So I was just like, what's the relationship here? If I'm reading off the page, why is she in a negligee? 
if they're not married, <laughs> I would not be comfortable, brother-in-law or not. <laughs> I, th- so, I think she's just supposed to be like a stereotypical like trophy wife that has now received all the business. And I think because she's not an asshole, I think he's very like protective of her. It could and, and I think Catherine just hates her. You know, I would hope so. These okay. Here's the people that I think are actually well intentioned in this town: Pete Martell, Josie Packard, and Lucy. I mean, I guess the crying cop Andy is pretty good too. But you know, it just he needs to. Stop you don't crying. trust the sheriff. I trust the sheriff, but I don't know. He doesn't seem as pure as these people. If that, makes I feel sense. like he's done some stuff, but it's not nearly as bad as anyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> And that being said, it was thanks to the crying cop Andy that I realized I wasn't reading the pilot because I thought I just read out a lot, but I was like, where's my crying cop? I definitely know he's supposed to be here somewhere. Mm. Reading through this script, though, I was like, they definitely made Andy... I didn't expect him to be so emotional all the time. (laughs) Everyone in this damn series is emotional. They're either super fucking angry, they're either just really dramatic or super ditzy. I feel like it's very hard to find a balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, they all could be suffering from sad, that thing you get when you have, like, that bad weather all the time. Oh, I know. Oh, like that depression. Yeah. 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 Depression thing, right? Yeah. So, one thing I want to mention that kind of goes back into, like, regular script structure I think the way that they introduced Josie's character here, and just if this was the first script that anybody was reading, to introduce her character as as a foreign person through the dialogue is really interesting because they they never mention that she's Asian. They just say, they just have her speaking an American dialect strictly through idioms. And wrong idiot. She she is not good with idioms. <laughs> they explain that the the husband, her late husband, brought her over from Hong Kong, and he's the way he spoke was basically all idioms. So that's how she learned English. And then he died before she could really get a grasp on the language. And that's why she had Laura to help her. Which, by the way, I want to take this time to point out how many freaking jobs did Laura have? She was everywhere busy Mm -hmm. busy how did she find time to do cocaine (laughs) maybe that's probably why she did it i know what it all makes sense (laughs) (laughs) so i was like damn she is busy maybe that's why she took the cocaine you guys are probably right i was (laughs) off the mark on that one i was just like it's a big that's the biggest mystery of all how the hell did she do it all (laughs) that's also that's why i said i had some vibes to the killing because that girl that ends up that's dead at the beginning of that show people are finding out that she has a bunch of jobs too and it's for her the reason she does this because she's planning on leaving town spoilers sorry whoever but um (laughs) she has a bunch of jobs because she's eventually planning on leaving home and striking out on her own but she never makes it out she doesn't make it out alive at least that's yeah it's just i don't know there's so much going on all the time and laura I don't know. Her life is exhausting to learn about because of the amount of things that she did, which also just opens up to like, she knew way too many people. So that 
further perpetuates everybody's a suspect. Moving down, I, when we are introduced eventually to Sarah Palmer, which is Laura's mom, this is where we get the introduction of some supernatural elements. Up to this point, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I feel like we haven't had any supernatural things happen until we meet Sarah Palmer. Okay, but here's the thing about that. When I watched it, like, even reading this, I mean, reading this, like, yeah, you get that, but then when you watch it on the screen, it doesn't translate as supernatural to me. It translates as she's gone through a trauma, and so she's freaking out, and she's having hallucinations. Mm -hmm. That's what I thought, too. But then I'm like, it's just too... Because she has that... She has that vision of the necklace being found in the in the actual pilot and then it turns out it is found yeah i think they're kind of doing the best of both worlds like either it is supernatural or you should play it off and that it's all just something that she's yeah and coincidence or she's hallucinating or stuff like that they could they're like on both they're straddling both sides it's not clear to me like so i don't know for for people that have seen and and are have watched this scene is donna comes to visit sarah obviously because it's laura was her best friend and i think that's the thing you do and sarah right away starts hallucinating that for one thing donna is laura and in the show this is executed in my mind so (laughs) poorly (laughs) it's it was 1990 times or what but (laughs) a weird juxtaposed image of Laura's face. I'm like, why couldn't you have figured out a way to just have Laura sit there for a second? It's really bad. It looks terrible. And then when she when she gets that vision of initially, so in the script, her her next vision is supposed to be she all of a sudden she could see this hospital hallway this dark hallway and there's this man we've never seen before and he's walking down he's very ominous and just creepy and he's running at full speed and then that translates over to the (laughs) the screen in the goofiest way i feel like it the way they shot it just takes away from what they were going from because you're just like are you fucking kidding me right now turns into so it goes from this like creepy man in a long corridor racing towards us at full speed then it goes to some creepy guy on the <laughs> leaning at the foot of what i assume to be laura's bed <laughs> like what the hell is that like it doesn't even look menacing he looks just weird out of place <laughs> It's like the weirdest. It that took me out. That t- this this whole scene, Sarah Sarah Palmer's character takes me out of every scene she's in. <laughs> I'm like I'm I'm here. I'm in it. I'm following the story, and then she starts that screaming, and I'm just like, somebody please tell her. What I remember most is that like she like stops for a second and then screams again, and it just feels so out of out of place. <laughs> and I'm like, are you really who cho- who told you to do that? Why didn't why didn't anyone tell her? That's what I wonder. I wonder if she watches through these episodes or if she ever watched the show again and just thought like I look like a fucking idiot. <laughs> well, like, I'm like, sure just, I'm sure it wasn't all her. That's mm-hmm. the thing too. Like it's not just all the actors. That's what it's just like who do you point the finger at? Or tell her. 
<laughs> but that's also like in the pilot i it was super weird when those boys are in the prison and they start doing that weird sounds from the oh, prison oh when they're barking at james yeah i was like what is happening yes right it's so confusing i'm like i think they think they look intimidating but to me they just look freaking weird <laughs> it reminded me of that like the warriors come out to play type of thing i was like this is weird and why are you doing this it's not effective <laughs> and james just looks like sometimes don't, don't i can't compare tell him. that iconic moment to fucking barking okay <laughs> we're not gonna do that <laughs> That's different. Maybe they were just trying <laughs> something on the day and they kept certain things in that they shouldn't have. Like, it worked out in well, Warriors. Well, I think that's, like you said, aren't they, like, the people who are working and making noises, aren't they teenagers? Mm-hmm. Yes. They probably I mean, that makes sense. It's scary <laughs> for them to think, oh, I'm going to bark at this dude. Huh? It's just it's like, like, get it? Because he's going to think that we're going to freaking... But uh, something like that, I think it comes down to, with with... Mike and Bobby barking. I don't know what the hell that was. <laughs> but it was two teenagers <laughs> trying to intimidate someone. But when it comes to, like, Sarah Palmer's visions, I feel like, at least in this scene in particular, it could have just come down to budget. They didn't know where to find time to shoot in a long corridor with a man running at full speed or to have Laura sit there. Maybe she was unavailable that day. I don't know. But it definitely, I think it, it's to the detriment of the, <laughs> of the scene, ultimately. It, it really takes away, because I feel like on like it should have been something more powerful when you mm-hmm. read it. And then when you watch it again, it just becomes a joke. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, the, if there were ever a scene to splurge on, I think that would be one of them. Because then it's just... It, you're right. It does make it a joke. Or at least I feel like even if you were under budget, like there was, there were other ways to do that scene, mm-hmm. even if okay. you needed to keep it on that set for that particular shot, you know, mm-hmm. there was some we, way to do it. If we put ourselves in the world of the, of the show and you were, uh, what, Sarah Palmer and you saw a girl and then all of a sudden your daughter's face was just randomly just supposed that'd be weird. <laughs> That'd be terrifying in real life. But really that's strange. not what makes her scream. Uh, it's, that's not what makes her scream. The guy I, makes her scream. The guy makes her scream, but the thing is, is like, I, I, I see what you're imagining, yep. and Yeah. But it's just like, that's not, I know for a fact, reading the script, that's not what they intended. I know. Okay, so overall, Act 3, I think there's a lot going on, and we're establishing, I guess, new elements of the show, like a, a potential supernatural aspect i'm still confused as to whether she's really psychic or just crazy with grief but i think it does add an interesting element and it is an interesting way to establish it because one thing that i struggle with and a lot of my scripts a lot of my scripts there's always some supernatural element to them and i struggle with trying to establish that in a world that i have also grounded in reality Mm -hmm. because you kind of have to pepper that in to make it seem like oh of course this is possible in this setting or this world. But with this script, I feel like it's so grounded in reality that they're just like, let's just put it in there and see if it goes, if yeah, anybody says I anything. I was going to say, like, reading your stuff, the way you, like, pepper stuff in, that makes sense and you totally get it. But this one just feels out of place. And they were like, it's like they wrote this script and they were like, oh, wait, weren't we going to do that thing? <laughs> weren't we going to include that? Yeah, let's just do this. That's what it feels like. So I don't know if it gets better throughout the series, but it, it doesn't hit here. 
Yeah. It's a lot. <laughs> it's like, it does feel like they had to come back and be like, oh, sh- we, we said that we were also going to be supernatural. Where can we fit that in? <laughs> like that, that was in our pitch shit. <laughs> <laughs> Moving forward into act four, the last act, which I titled, I feel less aware of what's going on than when I started. Just what this whole episode should have been. <laughs> We open up, this is where earlier when I was talking about how they took out some of that exposition that Audrey offhandedly mentions with the relationship between her dad and Laura. This is where it really comes back to to show its ugly head, I guess, to a degree. I'm calling her out. Audrey, your daddy issues are showing. And so far, she's been the only character in the script that I think is exactly the type of person we can assume her to be from the beginning. Everybody else has all these layers, 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 and then it's twists and turns like, I thought this person was one way, but maybe they're another way. But with Audrey, she's consistent the entire time. She's like, I'm kind of a bitch always. (laughs) I'm not trying to fool anybody. And I really appreciate that about her because it makes her, you're doing so much work already when you're reading through this script and when you're watching the show to try and keep track of like, what is that person actually like? Like, how is this character actually unfolding and being developed? You don't have to work that hard with this character, and I'm so thankful. (laughs) I think that she also, her and Donna, for the most part, are where I think a lot of the soap opera-y moments come in. Those surround their characters the most, from what I can gather. Do you guys feel that way? They all have issues, and that's I, I don't watch, I didn't watch a lot of the classic soap operas, but I think just issues in drama in general were, were, were like per the course for soap operas. So yeah, but if it's like more like relationship issues, then there's quite a, there's quite a few of those too. Yeah, no, I don't know. But Donna, yes, she's, she's the classic one of like, I was in love with my best friend's boyfriend and we are in love now too, but I don't mm-hmm. know. I feel like you kind of get that vibe from everyone, though, because everyone is hiding something. I think it's just for this particular episode, it's those two specifically. Mm -hmm. And maybe a little bit of Leo, but we don't spend as much time with him where he's actually like talking and revealing stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I that's one character I want to know more, but he also scares me that it's just like, if we do see more of him, I'm afraid of what we will be seeing. He's just going to be doing <laughs> bad things. He's <laughs> terrible. Like He's that terrible. Uh, this act also kind of introduces us to the, more so than the true pilot, it introduces, it, it gives us a chance to look at the dynamic inside of Bobby's house with his parents. And this is probably one of my favorite scenes in this episode. I freaking love Major Briggs. I <laughs> his character is so weird. Like on top of everybody else's weird tendencies, th- he's my favorite. <laughs> he's my favorite because you could tell he's they're setting him up to be his archetype as I understand it is he is this stark military parent who's very serious doesn't really have a sense of humor. And typically what you would see is in in that type of character is a father that's like overly strict, very distant from his kid and all that stuff, like very hard to approach, scary. Here, he's 
he's that character, but trying to be a good parent and trying to be like emotionally available for Bobby and Bobby. Like he's just, trying to give him a chance, which is different. Yes. Yeah. Bobby just hates him. And it gets to the point where it's just like, for me, I was like, this, this scene makes me think of Rebel Without a Cause. Just the vibe of probably Rebel Without a Cause if you couldn't take James Dean's side. If it was on the side of the parents where it's just like, no, our kid's just being ridiculous. Did that make sense? Like, but Bobby doesn't have a reason to not like his parents, at least from what I can tell here. His parents are trying really hard. Really but hard. But that's only what we see right now. That's only what we see right now. Yeah. But. Yeah, I thought it was. Right now. And even in the true pilot, I was just like, his parents are, I mean, probably just not really in touch with what his view is. They're out of sync. But they're not bad parents. I don't trust from what anybody. I, yeah, I know. I I, I'm with Angela. I'm like, from what we can tell in this episode, they're not bad parents. But I mean, you yeah, don't no, know. The, maybe, maybe, like, I mean, because the the dad smacks him, so I'm pretty sure some kind of abuse has, has been happening or corporal punishment has been happening since he's been a small child. So, mm-hmm. And the mother know. takes that a little too calmly. She's like, she shows a reaction, but she's just like, let me remove this cigarette from my food and let's continue on with this conversation. I was like, this is weird, you guys. I have to this- say, it made me really sad because meatloaf's like one of my favorite things. And to see, this, uh, so- to see that cigarette just land right in there, I was like, I was like, just oh, eat mother. around She's it. She's just trying to eat. <laughs> Let her eat her food. A quick sidebar on the log lady. What the F is going on with the log lady? I honestly feel like the writer's are giving readers a look at this town from the perspective of a semi-local. Like, the, and that's that's coming from me reading this script before the true pilot. We meet her in the true pilot at the town hall, but she still doesn't make any sense. And for her, like, I, I think it's one of those things where you can understand that this is just another, like, weird person. He's been here long... Agent Cooper has been here long enough to know, to have Lucy buy him his favorite donut, but he hasn't been long enough, here long enough to know what the fuck the deal is with the log lady. But the thing is, he's got that in because nobody knows what the deal is with the log lady. So you're semi-local in the sense that just like, you know about these people and you kind of get their dynamic, but he still doesn't have a super rapport with everybody in town. Does that make sense? Yeah. I also just don't, I don't get it. And I want to know what the log saw. That log saw everything and knows exactly what happened. It's like, my log will have something to say about this. <laughs> it saw something. And I wonder what would have happened if Agent Cooper had just asked the log. What if I Agent Cooper, I'm like, fuck it, let's do it. Like, what, what happened, log? Me? Log, what happened? <laughs> Did you see something? And I'm, I'm confused. I was like, is the log a child or is it a pet? I was like, why was the log unattended to see things that you didn't see? Why can't you just tell us? But yeah. You I, know, I think it is interesting because she walks around with that log like glued to her hip. When was the log alone? <laughs> well, I think I don't like I think it's just something that she uses because she like that's she has trouble talking about things. So she probably saw exactly what happened, too. But she's like, my log, my log saw. 
<gasps> I didn't see anything. That's what, what it is. Like, I highly doubt she left it alone. I think that's the thing that Dana. I noticed. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> what do you think? Because I, I, I was looking at it from, like, a mental health perspective a lot, too, like, this entire fucking episode. But I'm like, when you think of, like, the the women in this story, like, you just think of all the damage they've been through. And, like, that totally makes sense to me that something happened and now she walks around and that log is basically, like, another piece of her. It's her soft puppet. Yeah, essentially. Like, it's that totally so... makes sense to me. She's oh been gosh, through something traumatic. Mm-hmm. I did not even think about that. Ah, that's so cool. <laughs> she knows what, what she knows what happens. She, she knows, knows what happened. happened. And I hope it does it does it comes to light. I hope her log tells us what happened. You know? And then she could translate. <laughs> well that wouldn't that be funny if the log spoke like its own language? I mean that at this could understand. point, if Sarah Palmer can be psychic, I think this log can actually talk and no one's just bothered <laughs> to actually try to have a conversation with it. Okay. Ben and Jerry, I just want to, I want to, I want to touch on them for a second because they have like this weird scene that's supposed to be, I think, leading us to somewhere. I don't know where it is. I'm just calling it sketchy ice cream scene. <laughs> um, so it's actually, it's not in this episode. <laughs> yes. Which isn't in this episode. Yeah. It translates. Again, it's one of those like, they took so much of those two and put it in the next episode, but even then it's changed a lot. So Ronette, the the character Ronette, we haven't mentioned her yet in this episode, but she is presumed to have gone through the attack with Laura, but survived it. So her character is important but we're not exactly sure how she's connected to anybody because she's in a coma. Yeah. She's in a coma. So she can't speak for herself. And the only connection that anybody can find at this point is, I mean, aside from that magazine entry, we don't really know how she's connected to Laura, just that they went to the same school. So her, her development is very slow because of her being incapacitated but this is the only point where I really feel like we get something else about Ronette is this scene where these two brothers are talking about, oh, I'm going to this place, which I'm assuming is going to end up being the town's whorehouse that you were talking about. Or brothel, or I'm not sure what the correct terminology is. I, I'm not either. If I offended anyone, I'm sorry. That's just what I called it. I'm sorry. I don't know what we would call it. I don't know. I don't know what, yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. We apologize if we've offended anyone. Mm-hmm. Yes, but so they're talking about going to this place and Jerry has a line that says that they dropped a new bombshell up at Jack's, which I'm assuming is the place that they're talking about, straight from the perfume counter, which is a callback to when a, um, Deputy Hawk is talking to Ronette's parents and they tell him that she was uh, a sales girl at the perfume counter at the local department store. And I'm just like, this is the only piece of evidence that we have gotten for Ronette, aside from the fact like they found the crime scene and all that jazz. But I still don't know what that means. And it also feels like this, this scene in particular solidified in my mind that the structure of the show is venturing outside of the realm of traditional mystery. 
three. I know that up to this point, we could probably have deduced that. But for me, this is the only like aha clue. Like, ah, that's definitely something I think. (laughs) But you're not really sure where it's supposed to go. So in a typical mystery formula, it can go one of two ways. Uh, you, If we're learning alongside the detectives, say we at least get a sense of direction and the avenues to follow and every detail has at least some value. If we're focusing on a detail, even if it's a red herring, we know that it's important to solving the case. Otherwise, if we know something, if we start the show off knowing something that the detective doesn't know and we're waiting for him to figure it out, we're at least engaged by the way that they uncover the mystery step by step. Like we, we see how he could lead from clue to clue to clue to clue. But in this script, I feel like everyone could be a suspect. Nothing is coming together and there's something shady around every corner. And it's, I'm calling it red herrings, the TV show because nothing makes sense. And even when I feel like I've caught on to something, I don't know what that something is for. (laughs) That also has to do with, like, it's one of the first episodes in the entire series. Yeah. And I'm more used to miniseries where the whole show is planned already and the whole show has been written and may have already been shot. We don't know when all these ideas came to be. It's like, they might have done episode one without a plan for how it's going to end yet or something. They could have been, they could have been making it as they were going or... They thought they had a clear plan, but things changed along the way. And well, is... I know. Oh, sorry. No, that was it. <laughs> one of the well, one of the big points of controversy between between the writers and the network um, was around season two. They the network wanted Laura Palmer's murder to be solved, and David Lynch did not want to solve the murder, but Mark Ross thought that they owed it to the the fans to do it. So, and that's where we see the decline in viewers, because I guess after that, it kind of all went downhill from there. Do they solve her murder? Yeah, in season two, I guess they do. That's what I read. I don't know who did it, but they do, they do end up solving it. But it sounds like they never planned to. That may be why. Yeah. Well, yeah. initially they didn't want to, or at least David Lynch didn't want to. But then as like popularity of the show continued and obviously Laura Palmer's mystery really took off. People, I guess, wanted the closure of like, okay, well, but who fucking did it already? Like, who did it? If we're going from David Lynch's mindset, the story that it's based off of in his mind was never solved. Mm-hmm. So he was like, why do we have to solve it properly? Well, the then initial like, intention- then why would we, why, it wouldn't have legs. Yeah. Like, I feel like this, that's the problem with this one is that they didn't really set it up to have legs. One, like, if they solved the murder and then they kept going somehow. Like, it doesn't have legs that way. And then, again, if you don't solve it, then you're just stuck on this path for forever because it's they mm-hmm. don't get introduced to really a lot of other stuff. You know, it's still... Well, I guess the, the initial intention, as, as I found when I was researching it, they've talked about, like... The original vision for the show was supposed to be Laura's Palmer, Laura Palmer's murder was what kicked everything off, but then it slowly fades into the background as we learn more about what else is going on in the town. It's just something that gets your attention. Like this brings us to Twin Peaks, but this isn't why we stay. I think. It, I see. Yeah. So, but I think oh, if they oh, wanted to do that, then she should have faded away a lot faster. 
Yeah. Yeah. I agree. She's very – I also think that you can't start something so – focused on something like that if your initial if your intention in the long run is for it to be like something that fades into the background mm-hmm. but yeah but i guess that's just me <laughs> like that's no, that's agree. just how i would have approached this project i wouldn't have put so much stock in this storyline if i knew i wanted it to kind of go away so that we could focus on other crazier conspiracies going on in this small town yeah once again yeah. desperate housewives like it all starts because their friend died by suicide yeah and, but um that does kind of fade into the background fairly quickly it's like they have the funeral and she's still the the narrator but it it does fade into the back to deal with all of their present day soap opera issues so if that mm-hmm. was their intention i could see how they could have done it but since they went more the crime drama mystery route they should have made it where if you went back and you could put the pieces together, you could actually solve the crime. But it's like this one, they gave us so many red herrings. I don't know how any of this could have tied together. Agreed. The last, the the ending scene for this episode is, I don't know. It, it, it ultimately just leads to more questions, I think. I also think that Dr. Jacoby is a lot more weird than I thought he would be. He's a weirdo. Character. Yeah. He's strange. He's strange. <laughs> he reads strange and he filmed even stranger somehow. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they did it, but they <laughs> did it. The last scene of the episode, he receives a tape and it's setting up for like, oh, this this mystery is just beginning. Like, no one really knew the true Laura, but the the content of the tape, it, it changes from script to screen. And I think for the better. In the scene, Laura has sent him a, a tape that is a recording. I guess he initially, as a part of their her therapy, gave her a tape recorder um, and an envelope for when she's finished recording to send to him so I guess that he can interpret it to see what her mental state is when she sends him this tape and he's listening over it on the page it seems a little bit disjointed like it doesn't exactly go and it's not really revealing anything that we can tangibly tie to anything else but on the screen they change what she says so that it is directly connected so on the page she talks about this weird dream that she's having and we get to hear the first part of it where she's like talking about being in a strange room and there's this little man and an older man and yada yada and eventually dr jacoby just plugs in headphones and then we can't hear anything else and what we're supposed to be following up with is his facial expressions and it's supposed to turn into like oh she must be saying something crazy i wonder what it is or when it's really going to come to light but the way that it, it starts off, it doesn't really feel like this is information that's going to help anything. It's just a dream that she's having. But in the show, they switch it over to have her kind of talking about, it seems as though she's getting a little bit fed up with how sweet James is and how it's affecting the way that she can conduct herself. It still goes into... Well, it goes into her being lost in the forest. It drops a lot of Easter Easter eggs. It drops a lot of hints that we could tie to something eventually. It probably makes more sense. 
it probably has something to do with what led to her demise. So I think that change was for the better. What do you guys think? I think so, because I feel like it's just a, like, what's on the page doesn't make much sense. Mm -hmm. Again, she's just talking about the dream, and you're not sure what the point is in all of that. And then when you watch it, it's, like you said, it just, there's more of a purpose to it. It feels more purposeful when, as it translated. That being said, the scene she describes actually does happen in the show, eventually. It's... I don't, I don't know how it connects. I just know because of pop culture and it's a 30-year-old show that that scene about the little man in the red room really does happen. I just don't know why it happens. So I think we're seeing a lot of just like how the, the brie and the, the brie butter sandwich happens later. We're seeing things all in different orders than they originally intended it. So it's they're doing some changes for the better, some changes for the worse, but it's mainly the story that they envisioned is happening. It's just happening at different times throughout the series. And in different contexts, because if it, is it outside of a dream that we see it later on? I don't honestly know. Cause like I said, I haven't watched the whole thing. I just, I, I stumbled across that scene and I just thought it was very strange and I didn't understand why it was happening. See, it's interesting to think. And there's so many elements that could go into that. The reason why these things were changed in in post like after this draft or after the final draft even there's so many things as writers we have to kind of take into consideration there could be calls for change the day of the shoot there could be changes of dialogue some of the things that they take out of the script are very specific and it's weird to see that they just move it entirely or take it out entirely change it entirely or just repurpose it so it's strange to think about but it's something to consider that you know at the end of the day it's always subject to change they say that writing is rewriting for a reason but I think it even more than that is just like you're never really done with a project until it's hit the screen because then there's no more changes that you can make but this has such a crazy transition from script to screen it seems like whatever changes they could possibly make they did (laughs) And they salvaged as many ideas as possible, it seems. Mm-hmm. Overall, I think the show in general definitely traps you because of how many questions are just, they don't answer anything. All they do is keep churning out questions and you get no closure with anything. You don't feel like there's any direction you can go in where anything even slightly makes sense. And it's hard to know how to feel at the end of it. All the emotions. But at the same time, I, me personally, I want to keep going. At least in reading it, I want to keep going. And watching it, it's another story. <laughs> what do you guys think? It's one of those things where I really want to know, but I also know that it's still going to be just a hard watch for me. <laughs> I mean, I might like sporadically like spread it out whenever I'm in the mood. But I think the great thing about like streaming and now knowing I didn't realize that they actually solved her murder. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's one of the things that always turned me off about it. I always thought that they just never solved it. And so I'm like, I don't want to, like, I need that closure, especially if I'm going to put up with all this kookiness. So now I might actually watch it all the way through. But I think, again, like this is another series where I would, I'd want to read it as I'm, watching it too to see how much it changed and 
what changed and kind of research why it changed. So I don't know. We'll, we'll see if I finish watching it. I don't know if any of the other episodes are available in PDF online, but that would be interesting to do. I'll, I'll wait for you guys to tell me how it goes and then I'll decide after that. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, you, you just tell me, give me the cliff notes. Yeah. Like, let me know if I should. <laughs> let us know what you guys think. I know that this has a major cult following. If we offended you with any of our unpopular opinions, don't tell us. We don't want to know. <laughs> That's why they're opi- their opinions. <laughs> if there's a fact that we were confused about that you happen to, or if there's something that we were confused about and you know the reason why they did it that way, that we want to know. That's interesting. Um, but don't come at us saying that we're wrong because mm-hmm. we had an unpopular opinion. <laughs> That's not useful. And if you guys did your own breakdowns, we of course love to hear what you guys think. Maybe you had, I had so many epiphanies because of some of the things that you guys said today. And I think it's really interesting how that happens when you have a conversation with people about things like this. And then you realize, oh, I never would have thought of it that way without talking to you. So please, if you have some, some other input, we would love to hear it. Otherwise, you can tune in next month the script of the month will be broadcast news from 1987. So yes, read along with us, watch along with us, and thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, write for your life. Script to Screen is an original WODC podcast and an extension of the Reading on Writing column for the WODC blog. This show is hosted by the Writer Die Chicks and produced by Deanna Gomez. Research and script breakdowns are done by Mercedes Milner. Stay up to date on all things Ride or Die Chicks at thewodc.com and follow us on social media. We're on Instagram at the Ride or Die Chicks, on Twitter at WODC underscore official, and on Facebook at the Ride or Die Chicks.